Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. So today's reading is from Mark 10, verses 35 to 45, the request of James and John. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand, or at my left, is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said, and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles um, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the word of the Lord. Um, and now I want to welcome um, Jeremy, who will be giving the sermon. Thank you, Isabel. And welcome to everyone who's on the live stream today. Um, my name is Jeremy. I'm usually sitting at the back, um, helping out with the sound desk um, in normal times. But So it's pretty weird to be standing out in front of four other people preaching today. Um, as I said, my name is Jeremy, I'm married to Nat, um, and we've been blessed with a little boy called Henry earlier this year, he's four and a half months, and he's really keeping us on our toes. Um, as Nicole mentioned earlier, we've been going through um, the Lord's Prayer recently, um, but today we're stepping back into the Gospel of Mark, and we're looking at um, the theme of true leadership and what Jesus says about true leadership. Um, so let's get stuck into it. Aaron, if you could go to the next slide, please. Thank you. So during the lockdown last year, Netflix released a 10-episode docuseries called The Last Dance. The series documented the career of Michael Jordan, one of the best basketball players in history. In his time at the Chicago Bulls, Jordan won six NBA championships and five MVP awards, amongst a host of other um, individual accolades. It's safe to say that he achieved a huge amount of team and individual success. In each episode, we'll take him through Jordan's experiences through adversity and learn about the drivers behind his ultimate success. Interestingly, the docuseries also gave us a really good insight into Jordan's leadership style and the measures he took to achieve the success he wanted. Jordan was ruthless. He often berated and harassed his teammates at practice, all in the name of pushing them to be better and wanting them to meet the same standards that he had for himself. One of his former teammates has even said that he crossed the line numerous times. Jordan acknowledges his behaviour by saying, look, winning has a price and leadership has a price. So I pulled people along when they didn't want to be pulled. 
I challenged people when they didn't want to be challenged, and I earned that right because my teammates that came after me didn't endure all the things I endured. Once you joined the team, you lived at a certain standard that I played the game, and I wasn't going to take anything less. When people see this, they're going to say, well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. Well, that's you, because you never won anything. I wanted to win, but I wanted them to, be, to win to be a part of that as well. Look, I don't have to do this. I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. So this begs a question, was Michael Jordan a good leader? Many of his teammates have said that his leadership made them better players, and he was an incredibly successful leader. They won a lot of championships. So if you're purely looking at getting the desired outcomes and results, sure, you could say that Jordan was a great leader. But is this the kind of leadership that we, as Christians, want to model in our own lives? Do we want our own self-interests and ambitions to drive how we lead others? Probably not. Leadership comes in many forms and styles. COVID-19 has given us a great opportunity to see how leaders handle crisis, from political leaders to business leaders and even church leaders. Every leader has a different leadership style, and it can be hard for us to work out what good or bad leadership is, because it's all subjective and everyone has a different opinion on what the best way to do things is. At the same time, faith leadership is more important than ever. As, a, as Australia becomes more and more secular, true Christian leadership in our communities is so important in a time where trust in religious leaders is declining. The Australian National Talk Survey found that 41% of Australians don't trust le religious leaders. That figure is higher again in the 18 to 24 age bracket where 47% don't trust religious leaders. Remarkably, this is 15% higher than two years ago. So I think this presents both a challenge and an opportunity. It's a challenge by showing the impact that our leadership can have on those around us. Rightly or wrongly, what we do and how we lead can affect how others perceive our faith, Christianity, and Christ. But at the same time, it's also a huge opportunity for us all. We can have a big impact on the lives of those around us, and we can be great witnesses for Christ if we lead just as he taught us. But before we start to unpack today's passage, it's really important to recognise that leadership isn't just something that's only relevant to the diaconate or to Ian and Nathan as the pastors of the church. We can all be leaders in our own communities, schools, workplaces and families. You don't need a specific title or position or for someone to give you authority to lead them. This is something that you can start doing today. So we'll start to look at the question. Aaron, if you could do the next slide, thanks. So let's read through verses 35 to 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So what are James and John asking for here? Mark is very matter-of-fact in his recounting of the story, but you can picture James and John pulling Jesus aside away from the other disciples to ask this special favour from him. Then they take something from every kid's playbook, something that all of us have asked our parents when we were children. 
We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They almost try to trick Jesus into agreeing to give them what they want before he knows what they're asking for. You already get the feeling that they know that Jesus might not give them whatever they're going to ask. Then comes the question, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. But what did James and John actually want? To answer this question, we need to understand what they were expecting Jesus to be. Through prophecies, the Israelites heard all about this Messiah and were expecting huge things from him. They were told that he would have the government rest on his shoulders and rule with fairness and justice, come from the line of the great King David and be the heir to David's throne for all eternity and be worshipped and be called king. These are really big claims. The Israelites were expecting the Messiah to lead them in the restoration of Israel. From the prophecies, it's pretty easy to see why they thought this. Theologian Mark Keown says this about the messianic hope. There is ample evidence in the Gospels that many among the ordinary people dreamed of the day the Messiah would come on, come on God's behalf to put things right. This Redeemer was expected to be a warrior king figure who, with God on his side, would redeem Israel from the oppression of the Romans and Gentiles. He would establish a theocratic state centred on Jerusalem, the temple and the law. James and John were likely expecting Jesus to be a saviour who would save them physically, to be a leader in a social and political sense. They were picturing being at a banquet. As was custom in their day, the host of a banquet would sit in between his guest of honour on his left and trusted friend and advisor on his right. So when James and John think of themselves being at Jesus' left and right hand, they're picturing sitting next to Jesus, the ruler, at a banquet. Sitting in those positions of power would have been pretty special for them. They would have been associated with authority and influence, and to them, it was justified. They'd been with Jesus along the journey. There were two of only three disciples Jesus took with him to the Transfiguration, and they got to see Moses and Elijah, Elijah with Jesus. There's almost this expectation that they deserve to be part of Jesus' glory and to take part in the associated riches. But this attitude wasn't isolated to James and John. The other disciples were indignant when they heard about their interaction with Jesus. They went upset because James and John had asked a favour of Jesus that was outrageous and unreasonable. They were annoyed that James and John had beaten them to it. Just a few chapters ago, they were all arguing over who was the greatest, and now James and John had asked Jesus for the most prized seats in the kingdom when Jesus became the ruler. It's obvious that this is something that they all struggled with deeply, and there's an element of self-interest and pride in what they all wanted. While Jesus was trying to teach them that the greatest among them would actually be the least of them, they were blinded by their own selfish ambition to have power and status. Much like Michael Jordan, their idea of leadership was based on how it could help them succeed and achieve their own goals. They wanted to be given special positions, not because they wanted to help others grow, but because it meant that they got to sit at the left and right hand of Jesus, the ruler. It was me first and everyone else second. Their view of leadership was an earthly one. In their mind, they'd be governing and ruling provinces in Israel, not serving others and eventually leading the early church through times of persecution. Next slide, please, Aaron. 
So how does Jesus respond to this? Jesus' key teaching on this comes at verse 42 onwards, where he says, You know what those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think the way that Jesus approaches James and John's question shows how important he thought it was that the disciples understood his teachings on this. Jesus doesn't rebuke them as he's done in the past, even though it's probably justified. Instead, Jesus is gentle but firm in the hope that they'll grasp what he was trying to teach them. So what does Jesus do in response? He makes two clear points to the disciples and turns their views upside down. Firstly, rather than encouraging the disciples to pursue earthly power, Jesus tells them that they will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among them must actually be a servant. Jesus is very clear here. He tells his disciples to do the opposite of what they understood greatness to be. This also meant that they had to behave in a way that was the opposite of how their culture defined success. Can you imagine how hard this would have been for the disciples to hear? They were dreaming of the day that Israel would be restored and they'd be key parts of the government that Jesus would form. But Jesus isn't interested in earthly glory or status. He tells his disciples to look past what's right in front of them on earth and to look towards eternity instead. He effectively tells them to stop looking at their lives through an earthly lens. Next slide, please, Aaron. I remember when I first got glasses. I was about eight years old, and up until that point, I thought the world was perfectly clear, and I didn't know any better. But after picking up that first pair of glasses, it was pretty obvious that what I'd been seeing was not clear at all. I could see clearly when things were relatively close to me, but the further away they got, the blurrier they were until everything was just a sea of colour with no definition. I remember that first day of having glasses, running around the house and being amazed at how far I could see and how clear everything suddenly was, even things that were really far away. This is what Jesus was trying to do with the disciples, wasn't it? He was trying to give them these glasses with heavenly lenses to show them that there's so much more to their lives than chasing immediate earthly power and success. There's this whole other eternity for them to look forward to, if only they could focus on it. And even better, they could be leaders in helping bringing others into that eternity. Jesus tells them to ignore the things that seem great and promise so much in the short term, but in the end will fail to deliver. Instead, Jesus encouraged them to care for the people around them without needing to care for their own self-serving earthly goals. And this comes down to what the disciples prioritised. Was it their own short-term goals and ambitions, or was it God's purpose for their lives? This means that when we lead, we should lead with eternity in mind. If we do this, we put aside whatever authority or status we're getting from being a leader, and we start to understand and work towards our true purpose. The second thing Jesus does is give the disciples an example of how to be a true leader through servanthood. Jesus indicates that he himself is the ultimate example of how we should lead and how we can serve others, both through his example while he was on earth and then through his death. 
He tells us that our leadership should be others-focused, not based on our own goals or ambitions. It also means that we need to meet others where they are. Jesus was regularly seen with people who had very little status in their culture. The tax collectors, the sick and the poor. But when he encounters these people, he doesn't tell them to go away and fix their earthly problems until he thinks they're worthy. He meets them where they are and loves them despite anything else. That's how we should treat others. Instead of taking Michael Jordan's approach of dragging everyone along with him so that they can help him reach his own goals, Jesus shows us that the best way to lead is on the ground, hand in hand with the people around us, showing them that this is how Jesus loves us, so we should love others in the same way. Jesus also served through his death. By dying on the cross, Jesus carries out the ultimate act of servanthood. Jesus says that he himself, the Messiah that Israel was waiting for, didn't come to be served as everyone would have expected, but to be a servant to others and to pay the ultimate price as a ransom for the world's sins. He literally gave up his own life so that every single one of us could have eternal life, no matter who we are or what we do. Before we look at how we can apply this to our own lives, it's helpful to look at why Jesus focuses on servanthood. He could just as easily have repeated the two great commandments. When I was reflecting on this, what stood out to me would, about really wanting to be a true servant is the need to eliminate pride first. A debut sermon wouldn't be complete without a C.S. Lewis quote. So here's what he says about pride in his book, Mere Christianity. If you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. Now, once you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only, having, only out of having more of it than the next man. It is a comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, the pride has gone. If I'm a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer than I, he is my rival and my enemy. A proud man isn't always looking down on things. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Isn't that the struggle that the disciples had? They were filled with pride and it stopped them from understanding that true greatness and leadership comes from serving others and not themselves. At the heart of it, pride is self-absorbing. It makes us focus on ourselves, encourages us to make our own goals the priority. When we let pride take control, we don't leave much space for others at all. We don't have the capacity to really serve others. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can start to rid ourselves of pride, stop being self-sufficient and start trusting that God will provide for us, even if we're putting others ahead of ourselves. This then allows us to shift our focus away from our own goals and gives us the opportunity to start noticing and understanding the needs of those around us. But why is this important? Because how we treat others matters in our relationship with God. 
In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the impact of how we relate to others. Here is what he says. Then the righteous will answer the king, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. God clearly cares about how we treat others. And in the end, it's a reflection of how we, we think of him. But we can only do this properly if we stop being filled with pride and focused on ourselves. So what does this mean for us and what do we do with it? I don't think Jesus is asking us all to serve in exactly the way he did by physically giving up our own lives and dying for others. But we should look to Jesus as an example for how we are to live and serve. So how can we be better leaders through servanthood? We can start by recognising our own motivations. Theologian Mark Heron says this, True discipleship means repudiating the false patterns of leadership in the Gentile world and ambition for power, and serving as Jesus serves the world. So it's what sits behind our want to be great and the kind of things we want to be known for that matters. Instead of immediately seeking a position of leadership and the power that goes with it, we need to interrogate our motivations and understand why we're acting in a particular way. How often are we driven by earthly success when we lead others? And this message isn't new. We've already heard the same sort of message a few times as we've journeyed through Mark's gospel. Peter, Nathan and Ian have all preached on variations in the same theme, that being great and being a true leader requires servanthood rather than being great in an earthly sense. This battle over status and authority was clearly something that the disciples struggled with and it's probably something that we struggle with as well. While we might not actively have arguments with people about which one of us is the greatest, we need to recognise that the world is constantly pushing for us to be successful in some way. Particularly for younger people, a lot of the discussion is about looking to progress your career and to climb the ladder. There's not much room in that progression for servanthood and actively seeking to put others' needs ahead of our own. As it is with a lot of our faith, it's not that it's bad to strive for success. The Bible actually tells us to be stewards of the gifts we're given. It's just that we need to be aware of when earthly success and greatness becomes our primary motivation rather than seeking to be Christ-like. So the point isn't that it's wrong to want to be great. Author and pastor John Mark Comer actually argues that our desire to be known was in God's design for us. It's just that we've turned it into something that it wasn't intended to be. Here's what he says. I would argue the desire to be great was put there by the creator himself. After all, we're made in his image. The problem is this desire, which in its embryonic, innocent state is so, so right, is quickly warped and soiled and bent out of shape by the ego. We devolve from a desire to be great to a desire to be thought of as great. From a desire to serve the weak to a desire to be served by the weak. From a desire to save the world to a desire to have it. So many of us dream the wrong kind of dreams. Flat, one-dimensional, anemic dreams where the story is all about us, where we're the hero 
Everyone wants to be spectacular. We need to start recognising what our motivations are. And if we realise that we're focused on our earthly goals, start shifting them towards becoming more Christ-like and servant-minded. Secondly, we are called to act. The servanthood that Jesus talks about isn't conceptual or theoretical. It's physical and practical. Where possible, it's about actually being involved in the lives of others, anticipating or asking them what they need and being willing to go out of our way to help them. In my line of work as a lawyer, a really important part of the job is to tailor advice to the particular client I'm working with. To really add value, I need to have an intimate knowledge of how the client's business works and what their goals are. It's only then that I can be really useful. The same applies to the servanthood that Jesus is calling us to today. We're called to be active, practical servants of those around us. And to do this, we need to meet people where they are. A key part of this is to avoid looking down on people as though they are lesser. Instead, we are called to do our best to understand where people are and serve them as best they can, as we can based on their needs. We then need to act on what we understand from people's needs. This church already does this in some really good ways, usually through food. The Monday night meal is a really good example of this. But it's important to recognise that servanthood doesn't always need to come in the form of a grand gesture or in doing something that takes a lot of effort. And it could be something really easy that might only take a little bit of time out of your day. Some examples of this are being a friend to that kid at school who always seems to be left out even if it means that other people in your class might make fun of you for it. Being respectful to that teacher who none of your classmates seem to listen to. Spending that little bit of extra time to check in on a colleague who's having a rough time. Offering to drive someone to an appointment that they're particularly anxious about. Volunteering your time with a local organisation where you see a particular need being met and being available for a person so that they feel heard and understood. All of these are really simple things that all of us can start doing, and through these simple acts, we can all start to be true leaders in our communities, families, and workplaces. As the band comes up, I want to leave you with three key takeaways to being better servants. Put on your heavenly glasses and never take them off. Doing this will help you to see past the present power authority or status you may get through any position you have and look towards heaven and eternity. My hope is that by doing this, it will get easier to find opportunities and be in the position to serve others as and when they need. Let go of your pride and embrace humility. There will always be a nagging element of self-interest within us that will be encouraging us to take off those heavenly glasses. This will help us to stop looking down on others and learn to lead and serve together with people rather than from a position above them. Lastly, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> God gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us and lead us towards taking on more Christ-like behaviours in the way we live. It's only through the Holy Spirit that we're able to truly take on a servant heart and begin to lead others through servanthood. If we rely on the Holy Spirit, we can start to serve just as Jesus taught us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us a great example of leadership and servanthood in Jesus. Thank you that he lived his life selflessly 
and then end up dying on the cross for us all in the ultimate act of servanthood. We pray that you'll give us wisdom to recognise when our hearts and motivations aren't in the right place and pray that you'll help us to become better leaders. As we go out into this week, give us opportunities to serve others just as you serve us. In Jesus' name, amen.